The following audio is from a sermon series from Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And if you don't have a Bible, there's one in your aisle somewhere. You can look it up on your app on your phone. If you have an app, you can search Sacred City. And we've got a free Bible in the app right there. Now, when you're reading this, we, won't, won't, we can't really tell what the point of the whole chapter is until we get to chapter 12, where Paul starts addressing head-on these questions that uh, the Corinthians had regarding resurrection. Some people in the Cor- in church in Corinth were saying, oh, there's no such thing as a resurrection. Some people in Corinth were going, the resurrection's already happened. Some people in the church of Corinth were, were like, they were just a lot of confusion on what is the resurrection. So just let me state before, we're, we're not even going to get to verse 12. We're going to start that next week. But let me just state my premise in the very beginning. This whole chapter is about the resurrection and how it connects with the gospel. Okay? What is the resurrection? What is the resurrection for? How important is it to Christianity? Paul's going to answer all those questions for us over the next several weeks, and I can almost guarantee that you will be surprised by Paul's answer. Okay? I know I was. Listen, if there's even a hint of uh, boredom when you think about eternity, if there's even a hint of um, spookiness when you think about heaven, there's even a hint of that just sounds lame, then you do not understand the resurrection. Let me just hint where we are going. The resurrection is not life after death. No, the resurrection is something far more than that. In the words of scholar, New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, listen, the resurrection is life after, life after death. The resurrection is life after, life after death. Now, we're going to build on that. We're going to see what that is. It is a newly embodied life. It's not just a spiritual existence. It's not just you're dead and then you're somewhere else as a spirit. The resurrection is a new embodied flesh, physical body existence, okay? And we're gonna, we're gonna, I'm going to build on that. We're going to talk about it. So I'm just going to let you know, when I first came to understand Paul's teaching here, and he doesn't just talk about it here, he talks about it in other places, but I was, uh, to say it mildly, I was blown away. It impacted me so greatly that I felt like I had literally had another conversion. It not only changed the way that I look at eternity, but it changed the way that I live in the here and now. Um, I used to think that this whole world was just going to burn up and God was just going to throw it away and then we get this nice heaven, right? So everybody knows if you think that's going to happen, uh, it's just like this. You drive your car. If you know your car is a rental car, you drive it like you stole it, right? Never buy a rental car. Never, because as soon as somebody gets in it, he becomes Tony Stewart, right? Wah! He just floors, it doesn't matter. His slamming brakes. The brake pads are going to work. It doesn't matter. Transmission's going to work. It doesn't matter. It's a rental, right? And you think there's no future in this car for me, so I can treat it however I want to treat it. 
Well, many Christians think that about the earth, think that about creation. Oh, he's just going to burn it all up anyways. He's just going to throw it all away. So it doesn't really matter how we live in the, in the, in the day and age today. It doesn't really matter how we live in community. It doesn't really matter how we treat the environment. It doesn't really matter what neighborhood we live in or how we treat our neighbors. Or That, that stuff doesn't really matter because... Ultimately, the resurrection is about leaving all this earthly stuff behind and floating off into Narnia somewhere, right? See, but what, what I'm going to say today and what we're going to see over the next few weeks is the truth of the resurrection, the doctrine of the resurrection has so much weight behind it that it can not only get you stoked for eternity, but it can also change the way you live your life now. And I'm praying that you're going to have an experience like that or even greater experience over the next few weeks as we continue to take a look at the nature of the resurrection and its connection with the gospel. So now, before I jump in to the text this morning, I want to remind everyone that I actually preached this text on Easter. So Easter Sunday, I preached basically 1 through 10. So in a sense, this sermon is part 2. So if you weren't here on Easter, you can find that uh, message. So that's kind of the prequel. That's the the warm-up message to this message today. So if this doesn't make sense or you want some more, you need to go to sacredcitychurch.com, find that message from Easter. You can download that and listen to that for free. So that's what we're going. Let's go to verse 1. Let's jump in. That's all I'm going to say about where we're headed over the next few weeks, but let's jump in and go where we're going. Chapter 15, verse 1. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, this is what he says. Now, I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preach to you. Now, I would remind you of the gospel I preach to you. So, let us just back up and ask the Apostle Paul, if I asked you right now, what is the gospel? I'm sure there would be as many different answers as there are people in this room. And I think most of you, most of us, would probably zero in on a few things. We would probably zero in on God and then sin and then G- and maybe man's response or then Jesus and man's response there and then heaven. Okay, most of us would probably package the gospel that way. But let's see how the apostle Paul packaged the gospel. How did he present the gospel? What is the gospel to the apostle Paul? Here we go. Verse, let's just go to verse three real quick. We'll come back to the rest of verse one and two later. Here's the gospel for Paul. Verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Now, it's important that we see what Paul is trying to say here. Paul is saying the message I preached to you and is really the, the gospel I gospeled to you. That's what he's saying. The evangel I evangelized to you, the gospel I gospeled to you, that it's this. Listen. The gospel I preach to you is the same message that I received. It's the same body of information. What we're about to read, this is a creed. Okay? It's a confessional statement. It's something that was passed down. It's something that was memorized. It was something that was written down. It's something that came down from the apostles important for us to see that. Paul is saying this 
is the gospel tradition that has been passed and approved uh, down by the apostles. This is, in fact, the genesis of all the great Christian creeds. This is where the Nicene Creed comes from. And it's similar to what we do every Sunday when we profess our faith. That it's significant because Paul is writing this just 20 years after the death of Jesus Christ. So, it's, so listen, why is it important for us? It's important because people like to say, oh, don't trust the Bible. It's a 2,000-year-old document, right? You can't really believe that. You can't really trust that. Well, when we come here to 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is passing on to us the gospel in creedal format. He's passing on something that's been passed on to him within 20 years of the death of Jesus. So when he's saying, here's what the gospel is, and you're going to see it inside the statement here, he's going to say, here's the gospel, go ask the eyewitnesses. Go interview them for yourself. Within 20 years, 20, 25 years, Corinthians was written, within 20 to 25 years after the death of Jesus, listen, the gospel is stable. It's written down. People like to come up with these far-fetched ideas that in this council they determined that Jesus was the, you know, God. He, nobody thought he was God until hundreds years later. No, no, no. We're going to see right here, within 20 to 25 years, this was written down. The gospel was solid. There was something that was the gospel. There was something that was the gospel. This is what it is right here. It's a body of information. Now let's keep Going. It's been memorized, it's been written down, it's not up for debate. And now Paul is saying here, this is the historic apostolic gospel. Paul's saying, I am no innovator when it comes to the gospel. I'm just a mailman, right? I'm a middleman. I'm delivering to you what I received from him. I didn't get it, look at it and go, that's like... So 20 years ago, I'm going to update this. He didn't make changes in the gospel. He received it, and then he passed that same message on to his disciples. He's unal it's unaltered, unfiltered gospel. So what is the gospel? Let's keep reading. That Christ died for our sins. Now, Christ means the anointed one. Okay? It means the one that's been promised to Israel to be his, Israel, her redeemer, to answer, to fulfill uh, the storyline of Israel, right? The Messiah, the anointed one, that this Messiah, Jesus, died for our sins. So there's a substitutionary, we call it substitutionary atonement, that Christ took the place of humans. Christ took the place of his church, and he died in their place for their sins. Look, that he was buried, hmm. that he was raised on the third day. I'm sorry, I'm going to go back to Christ died for our sins. Look at this. Christ died for our sins, what? In accordance with the, okay, this is huge right here. Like the, the New Testament Bible, half the Bible that we have, the New Testament was not written at this time. Okay, it wasn't written yet. It wasn't written down. So when Paul says 
This is the gospel. Christ Jesus, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. There's a big connection that we need to make, and it's hard for us to make. And even if you've grown up in church, it's hard for us to make that he's saying Jesus is fulfilling all of the Old Testament, that Jesus is the answer to all of Israel's longings. Jesus is the answer to all the storyline of the Old Testament. And I, I fear that there's many people in our church, many people in the evangelical church that literally think they can have a gospel without the Old Testament. Don't read that. It's all over with. Just read the New Testament. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. You're going to miss something about the gospel if you don't understand the storyline of Israel, the storyline of the Old Testament. And he says this, Several times. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now, I feel like I'm just going to touch the surface on so much of this stuff because I talked about a lot of it on Easter, so I can't do it all. Jesus, the apostle says, Jesus was, he died for our sins, he was buried. And then three days later, he was resurrected. Now, most of us, we have some kind of theology of the afterlife, right? We believe that if we die, we go somewhere, right? If we die, we continue to live, correct? Many of ours, theology of the afterlife is not formed by the Bible, but it's formed by Hallmark cards or what we see on, you know, uh, movies, Right? People are going to hang around here maybe if they're upset about things, right? They're going to hang around and torment us maybe, little ghosts or something, right? We've got a lot of weird ideas. But let me just say, let me ask you here. What was Jesus doing when his body was laying in the tomb for three days? Now, I'm not, I don't have time. I just, I don't have time to like go into all the debates there. There's a lot of stuff that surrounds that issue. He told the thief on the cross, today I will be with you in paradise, or you will be with me in paradise, right? In, one, in some of our creeds, it talks about Jesus descending to hell, right? In uh, the New Testament, it also talks about Jesus preaching to those who are in prison. And, and so was Jesus, did Jesus go to hell? I don't, we don't know, you know, I, I'm not saying he didn't. I don't know. Did, did Jesus go immediately to paradise? I don't really know. That's not what I'm going to talk about this morning. But what I want us to see is when Jesus was dead, he was also alive. His body was in the tomb, but he was somewhere doing something. He's eternally God, right? We all get this, right? When you're dead, we live, we, well, unless you're an annihilationist that just believes that when you're dead, you just rot. You're, you cease to exist. But if you have a soul, if you have a spirit, that you go on living, right? So I want you to think about this. Jesus Christ, he dies, he's in the grave, yet he's in heaven, in paradise, or he's in hell, doing some, working out something of our salvation, or preaching to those in prison, or, you know, suffering for us, or doing something. He's still spiritually alive. Do we see that? Okay? That is life after death. That is not resurrection. Going to heaven, being spiritually alive or spiritually present, that is not the resurrection, okay? And indeed, in that sense, every single human being will live after death. 
every human being will live after death. Every human being will stand before God after death. But what is the resurrection? Jesus shows us a picture, a snapshot into the resurrection when three days later, his spirit is reunited with this new glorified body. See, resurrection isn't just life after death. It's life after life after death. It's embodied life. It's you got a new body, you're living in the flesh again, a glorified flesh, a spiritual, I don't even know how to, I can't describe it all, right? But it's life after life after death. And again, we're gonna get into this a whole lot more in the coming weeks, okay? Now, then what's Paul do? So he says Jesus, and we know Jesus, like he gets his body, but it's a glorified body, so people like can't recognize him. People don't really, like he kind of looks the same, but he doesn't kind of look the same. He can sit on chairs, he can eat fish, and then he can walk through walls. Trippy, right? Some kind of third dimensional body. I don't know what it is, right? It's crazy. But now look what Paul does. So what's the gospel? He died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised, so resurrection. And then, and look, verse 5, that he appeared to Cephas. So that's Peter. He shows up to Peter after his resurrection. So Jesus is dead. Jesus is spiritually alive. Jesus' spirit is reunited with his body. He comes alive. He's resurrected. Now he goes, shows himself to people. Shows himself to Peter, a, a man who betrayed Jesus, right? A man who ran away from Jesus on the night of his betrayal, on the night of his persecution, the night of his death. Peter runs away. Peter denies him three times in front of servant girls, right? Uh, Jesus shows up to him and says, I'm back. Then he appears to the 12. So Paul says, Jesus, the resurrected Jesus Christ, showed up to all of the apostles. Then he appeared, to blow our minds even more, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Look at, here's the statement. Most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. What's he saying? Listen, I'm, I always, man, I, you know you're old when I stutter about when I, how old I am. I'm 35, I think. I'm 35, right? I'm 35 years old. So this document was written, let's say 20, I'll just ladder, 25 years after the death of Jesus. When I did things, I don't even know what I did, but I, let's just say something that I did when I was 10 years old. If I tell you a story of something that I did when I was 10, 25 years ago, I go, oh, my whole family was there, or I did it in front of my whole class, or whatever. Go ask them, right? Go ask them. Go interview them. See what, see what Paul is doing here? This is so close to the resurrection that it's not hundreds of years later where he's writing down his, you know, his thoughts or he's not receiving it from a dream from heaven. He's writing down actual events and he's giving people, he's giving actual names, right? He's saying, go check out, go ask Peter. Go check, go ask the apostles. There was over 500 people there that one time. Go ask any of them. Some of them are dead, Right? Some of them are dead, but there's a lot of them still alive. Go interview them. Now, in our day and age, we need to hear this. When someone asks you the gospel, do you get all weird? Oh, man, it's this spiritual thing, and you need to, like, you know, pray, and you need to ask, and you need to, see. like, when, you, when someone says, what is the gospel, 
Paul is saying right here, the gospel is not something that you shut your brain off to believe. Oh, just blind faith, just take it by blind. He's saying, no, no, no. The gospel is something you can interview people about. It's a historical event. It's a historical fact. It's something that's happened inside of history. Do not turn your mind off and just believe that Jesus was dead, but now he's not. Don't just take my word for it, Paul's saying. Go ask them. Go ask the eyewitnesses. They were there. Then he does something even crazier. Then he goes, oh, and James, by the way. Well, if you know anything about James, James saw the resurrected Jesus. James was Jesus' little brother, right? And it's like, it's really hard to convince your little brother you're God, okay? I've been trying for 35 years, right? And none of them believe it. None of them believe it. And James did not believe. James said, Jesus, you're crazy until Jesus is dead for three days and he shows up resurrected. And James goes, wow, I was way off. And then lastly, Paul says, verse 8, last of all, as to one untimely born, and that translators kind of, they didn't really wuss out. I don't want to say they wussed out, but another, comment, another uh, scholar, well, N.T. Wright translated as one ripped from the womb. That the term here is um, someone who's kind of just like, how do I say this? My wife's nine months pregnant, and her time is coming. But Paul is using this term like someone came up and just cut open mom's belly and just yanked the baby out. Like, like it just happened. It was nothing. Uh, it wasn't time for it. It just kind of, God just kind of stepped in and abruptly captured him. Last, to, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Paul. A very good boy, a very religious young man, a Jewish young man, educated in some of the highest schools, had large chunks of the Old Testament memorized, maybe even the entire Pentateuch memorized, right? Long chunks of uh, the Psalms memorized, who was very devout. He was very moral. He because he's moral and devout and he's a good Jew, he knows there can only be one God. Our God is one. So when Jesus shows up and says, ah, kinda, I'm God too, he says, no, you're not. And he persecutes this sect that's popping up. He tries to snuff it out and try to crush it because clearly this can't be the answer to Israel's Messiah. This guy's claiming to be God. God is only one. So Paul is standing there and he's persecuting the church and he's standing there one time when Stephen gets stoned. It's the first Christian martyr. Paul's standing there holding the cloaks of the men who kill the first Christian martyr. So Paul feels, so Paul, Paul says, I, I don't even deserve to be in this list of people. I don't even deserve that Jesus Christ showed up to me. The resurrected Jesus Christ showed up to me. But he says, this is the gospel. These are the historical events surrounding Jesus. He lived. He died. 
He was buried. He was resurrected. He fulfilled all the longings of Israel. He came back and plenty of people saw him. And Paul says, including me. That's history. That's not a fairy tale. That's not a spiritual spiritualized thing where you're out in the desert and you're not drinking enough, you know, you're not drinking water and you visualize something happens and you have a warm fuzzy. That's something that actually happened. We said on Easter that it's hard news. But there's something else here. If I had, if I do points, I don't ever do points, but if I had points, first point, the gospel is historical. The gospel is a historical event. There's something else here I want us to see. I think many of us, especially if you grew up in church, you call yourself an evangelical. Everything I said, you're probably like, yep, 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 yep. But I think this is the part that we miss. Go back to verse one. Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you. Now isn't that strange? How remarkable of a statement is that? Really? Can I ask you, how could we forget? Have you ever forgotten that Jesus Christ died, was buried, was resurrected? Has that ever like slipped your mind? Somebody says, hey man, did you know Jesus was resurrected? What? Oh, I forgot about that, right? Thank you for that reminder. Weird, isn't it? I doubt it's ever slipped our memory But here, this is what Paul's getting at. Paul isn't saying that the memory of the the event, the memory of the historical event has somehow slipped their minds. He's pointing, here it is, he's pointing to another dimension of the gospel, another aspect of the gospel, another way of looking at the gospel. Look at verse two, or verse one, I'm sorry. The gospel I preach to you which you received, past tense, right? You, that's something that you, it's a body of knowledge that you received, in which you stand, okay, that's different. It's got this present aspect to it, an event that has present implications, and by which you are being saved. Wow, that's a big statement. So it's something that you've received, it's something that you currently are standing in, it's also something that is saving you. That's not a past tense, that's present tense. It's something that's doing work in your life right now. And then look at this qualification he puts on it. If, he says, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you. So he's saying, if you hold fast to the original apostolic historic gospel, if you hold fast to that, you don't throw it off for some self-help version or some other kind of gospel that's been given out there. If you hold fast to that gospel, it's going to save you. So we see here that Paul is reminding Christians of something they've already heard. He's reminding Christians of something they've already believed, something they are currently standing in, and something that is in the process of saving them, in the process of changing them more and more into the likeness of Jesus, if indeed they hold fast to this gospel word. Now, theologians have said, we are saved by faith. 
not fruit, or not anything we could do. But no one is saved by fruitless faith. No one is saved by fruitless faith. Paul's saying that there's something that you have to hold on to, there's something that you have to cling to, that the gospel is a present event, but there's more to the gospel than come to Jesus, get saved, go live your life however you want. Eternity is dealt with. I believe most of the gospel that we share with our children is the gospel that we really believe down deep, and it's believe in Jesus so you won't go to hell. Believe in Jesus so you go to heaven. And Paul's saying that is not the gospel. That's a part of the gospel, but it's not the gospel. The gospel is far bigger than that, far more expansive than that. It's something that has present implications on the way you live your life, and it's something that is still saving us. Still saving us. That might blow your theological grid for all the Calvinists out here. And I'm a Calvinist, okay? But that might blow your grid right there. In the process, if we hold fast. That sounds like legalism. We'll see. Paul says in Colossians 1 that the gospel is growing and bearing fruit in the whole world, Paul says, even as it does among you. Listen. Paul sees the gospel as something that is alive. It's more than an event. It's more than a historical event. Is it a historical event? Absolutely. But it's more than that. It's something that's growing. It's something that's on the move. It's something that can't be stopped. So it seems that Paul's understanding of the gospel is an event, and it's also a power. He says so in Romans, that it's the power of God for the salvation. So it's power and an event. It's something that has definitely happened inside of history and time, but it's also something that is pushing forward and is still on the move. It's still bearing fruit. It's still taking lives. It's still making fruit in the lives of people who believe it. And it's this aspect of the gospel that's easy to forget. Paul uses one word to define this aspect of the gospel. Let's just read, keep reading verse 9. For I, he, says, he explains the event of the resurrection. Well, more than just the resurrection. but Then he says, for I am the least of all the apostles. I'm unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Three times in 9 and 10, Paul says the gospel is an event, but it's also about something else. It's about grace, grace, grace. He says it three times. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Now, what is grace? There's a lot of definitions out there. I think some of them are helpful, some of them are not helpful. Let me try to define what grace is for you. Grace is God's one-way love. What do I mean by one way? I'm going to have to define all these terms. God's one-way love. That love goes one way, okay? So nothing coming back, right? 
God's one-way love given to sinners that allows them, listen, here, here it is, God's one-way love given to sinners that allows them to see God and to know God in a personal way that turns their heart back to God in awe and worship. It's a big definition. God's one-way love, we read, in this, we read in Ephesians 2, that we are dead in our trespasses and sin, so people are dead. God's one-way love, I guess I'm going to love this dead person. God loves this dead person, and by loving this dead person, quickens them, makes them come alive, makes them able to see him in all of his beauty, and what that does is now brings love and worship back to God, okay? But it's all initiated by God. He loved a dead person. He loved a corpse, okay? That's the one-way love. That's what grace is. God loving something dead and undeserving and enabling that to see his goodness and see his beauty and worship and love him in return. Listen, it is an unrequested act of God. It is an unrequested supernatural work of God. What do I mean it's unrequested? Let's look at the Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul is on the way to persecute more Christians. He's on the way to be more devout, to be a more devout Jew. He's hardened in his unbelief. He can't make sense of this blasphemous man who calls himself God. We know God is one, and he says he's a part of it. I am hardened. I, I know I'm a Jew. This, I, it's been confirmed over and over. I know I'm right. I know I'm in the way. I have no desire to know Jesus Christ. I have no desire to worship him. I definitely don't see him as beautiful. I'm glad he's dead. One more rebel over and done with. That's the Apostle Paul. And what happens? On his way to Damascus, the grace of God happens. God, in the form of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ shows up to the Apostle, to Saul at that time. Jesus Christ shows up to Saul. I love it, man. It's a great picture. Knocks him off his horse. He's laying in the dirt, blinding light. And Jesus says, why are you persecuting me, Saul? And can you just imagine the amount of confusion? I'm totally on God's side. What is he talking? Who is this person talking about? Who are you? I'm Jesus Christ. Oh. Like this is a James moment, right? I was off on that. But listen, this is the power of the resurrection. God does not show up and go, Saul, let me answer your quandary over the Trinity. God is God. Jesus is God. The Spirit is God. We all work in unity together. We're a God of a community. Have I answered thoroughly your questions and inquiries into the Christian faith? Please believe now. He doesn't do that. Resurrection just shows up. Poof, I'm here. Paul says, I'm confronted. I don't get this. I don't understand this. I'm challenged, but I can't deny the nature of the resurrection. I can't deny that we killed that guy really well a while ago. I know he was dead. And now he's here. Resurrection, poof. 
Now that just, poof, cooks my noodle right there, right? That fries my hard drive. And if you think, if you think the gospel is like just about being forgiven, it might cook your noodle as well because the gospel is about being forgiven, but it's about far more than that, far more than that. If you have a gospel that's just go to take your sins to Jesus, he forgives you, and then you get to spend eternity with him. That gospel is so small. That gospel is so boring. That gospel will not attract your kids. That's a gospel of fear-mongering. Don't want to go to hell. Want to go to heaven. That sounds boring, but I'd rather go to heaven. It's too small. In fact, throughout the New Testament, so what happened, let me just say this, what happened to Paul, that's called conversion. That happens to everyone or they're not converted. Now, Jesus shows up in the flesh, resurrected? Absolutely not. But you're confronted with the truth of the resurrection. And resurrection explodes on the inside. And you come to see it as beautiful and true. Not just true, but beautiful and true. And then we're going we're gonna to keep going and see what else happens. Okay? But let me just say this. Throughout the New Testament, the gospel has got other words that go along with it. Okay? We hear in the New Testament the gospel of Jesus... We hear of the gospel of the kingdom. We hear the gospel of Christ, the gospel of the grace of God, the gospel of the glory of Christ, the gospel of our salvation, and the gospel of God. All of these terms reflect, listen, some aspect of the full and expansive true gospel. It's like a beautiful diamond that you can hold up and you can see one aspect of it and then you turn it, see another aspect, turn it, see another aspect, turn it. It's all the gospel. But, Like a beautiful diamond, if you're zeroed in on one aspect of it, you're not going to see its brilliance. You're not going to see its beauty. You're looking through a microscope at one little aspect of of a diamond. You're not going to get the beauty of it, right? You want to pull that baby back, right? You want to move it around a little bit. Let the light hit it, right, ladies? Right? That cubic zirconia does the same thing. You can do that too, right? You want to twist it. You want to look at it. That's the same way with the gospel, If you want to be struck by the beauty of the gospel, we've got to see it from all the angles that the scripture presents it. We need to step back at it and gaze at it and it's all of its brilliance and diversity. And when Paul shares the gospel here, he doesn't even mention heaven. He doesn't say, "Woo, sin's taken care of, now you can float off into heaven when you die. He doesn't even mention the afterlife right now in this section. He's going to later. He's when he talks about resurrection. He doesn't say, here's the gospel. You're a sinner. Jesus saves you by your faith. Now you get to go to heaven. That's the gospel. That is part of the gospel. Absolutely, 100%. But that's like an equation. That's the gospel of sin management. When Paul talks about the gospel here, he says this, if you've received it, if the reality of the resurrection, if the reality of the event has come into you, listen, there will be symptoms that show 
in your life right now, there will be symptoms that show you've been infected by grace. There will be symptoms that show you have been inhabited by grace. What? See, at least two symptoms Paul shows us here. Is the gospel an event, a historical reality where Christ paid for sins? Absolutely, absolutely. But it's more than that. It's also something deeply powerful, deeply personal, deeply life-changing, life-altering we see from the apostles. Look at verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Hmm. By the grace of God, I am what I am. See, this is, this is symptom one. If the reality of the resurrection, if the reality of the gospel has came into you, has inhabited you, there will be symptoms. Here's symptom one. I am what I am. What's he saying? That's identity language. Paul's saying my identity has changed. Paul is saying that the gospel has made a fundamental change in who he is as a human being. His personhood has shifted. The place he finds his meaning in life, the place he finds his ultimate value has changed. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Now, let me just tell you this. This is one of the uniquenesses of Christianity. Did you know that no one can make themselves a Christian? God makes Christians. Do we believe? Absolutely. Is our faith important? Absolutely. Where do you think that comes from? God. How influential do you think Paul was in his own salvation? Man, I'm just meditating on these Psalms. I wonder who that Messiah is. <gasps> no. He was hardened in his unbelief. He was hardened in his rejection of Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ. And God, by grace, overpowered it all. Paul is saying Christianity is different from every other world religion. Every other world religion is about making your life better and making you better. Christianity is about making you new. Brand new. Not improving, not upgrading, making you new. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Paul is showing us something here that is far greater than just forgiveness. Paul isn't just forgiven. He's new. When I first came into the faith, I was so blinded to the reality of my own sin that I literally thought, I told my friends when I was forgiven, the first time I prayed and when I was 17 or whatever, and I confessed my sins and turned to God, I told my sin, in a few years, I'm gonna have this sin thing beat. We would talk about, it's called perfectionism. If you could really reach perfection in this life, I'm 17 years old, I'm like, yeah, I could do that, and I'm going to do that. I've already stopped cussing. Huh? 
the bad thing about that gospel that I believed? Every time I sinned, my salvation went out the door. And if somebody confronted me on a sin that I didn't think I had done, I got to confess every sin. I got to repent of every sin. This is so exhausting. That's the gospel of forgiveness. Paul says, no, 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 no. It's not just you're wiped clean and now you get a new start. Oh, God's a God of second chances. Wipe the slate clean. I don't need second chances. I need millions of chances, right? God's not the God of second chances. God doesn't just wipe the slate clean and then hope that we stay sinless from now on, right? God makes us completely new. This is so much better, so much bigger than just forgiveness. Paul says, I was that, now I am this. He didn't just, I used to do this, now I do this. No, 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 I am language, identity. Something foundational to who he is has been changed. He's been changed by grace. God has graciously deposited new life into Paul. I want you to think of that. When God saw the, or Paul saw the resurrected Jesus Christ, God took a seed of heaven. God took a seed of himself. God implanted God's own life into Paul. He put that in there and that thing's meant to grow. He's been had new life deposited and now something's changed about him where now he says, but I'm not defined by what I do anymore. I used to be defined by what I did. Hear this. My education my moral ability and aptitudes, my avoidance of sins and performance of duties and rituals. God's really happy with me because I read my Bible every day. God's really happy with me because I have, I, I've cleaned up my language. God's really happy with me because I don't watch those movies. God's really happy with me because I avoid pornography. God's really happy with me because... See... Every day, if you're living in that mindset, every day is a performance to be evaluated at bedtime, right? Or you lay your head down to sleep. Was I good today? My good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. Is God pleased with me today? You know what? On days where I went to missional community and opened up, and then maybe I served my neighbor. Right? I didn't cuss him out when I wanted to. It's been a good day today. Those days I can lay my head on my pillow proudly and go to sleep knowing Jesus is just as happy with myself as I am. I'm so thankful I'm not like that other guy in missional community. Oh, my goodness, his life is so jacked up. I'm so thankful I'm not like those poor, wretched sinners. And maybe we even, we, and then the Christian, oh, wasn't for the grace of God, I'd be just like that dirt bag. Right? Or, or maybe you have more of these days. <laughs> the days where it was a bad day. Right? The days where you couldn't keep it together. The days that you actually let those thoughts that were in your mind out your mouth. Right? The days that uh, you lay guilt ridden on your bed for clicking on the pornography one more time. 
for going too far, for saying what you shouldn't have said and doing what you shouldn't, shouldn't do, right? Those days, those bad days, you lay there feeling guilty, feeling full of shame, right? And doing what? Making promises. It's a bad day. Tomorrow will be better. I'll try harder. I'll do more. I can do this, God. I can do this. I know I can do this. I can love my wife perfectly. I can parent my kids perfectly. I can be a perfect boss, and I can be a perfect employee, and I can be a perfect neighbor, and I can read all the commandments in the scriptures, and I can do that perfectly. Just give me one more chance tomorrow. I'm ready for the day. You know what Paul says? All of that is over. I don't define myself by what I do anymore. I don't define myself by my sins or by my successes. I define myself by the grace of God. By the grace of God, I am what I am. That's all over. That's the power of the gospel. That's the reality of the event. Once the event comes into me, the resurrection of Jesus tipped over a domino that now has implications even in my life. The resurrection of Jesus tripped a tripwire. That resurrection happens all over the world now. Resurrection happens in our own souls. New life comes. The reality of which will come in the second coming. We're going to get into that in weeks. I can't say everything about it. I'm more than forgiven. I'm new. I've been given new life by God. What does that mean? That means what was Christ's by nature. Jesus was holy. Just use that. We could go on a million things. Jesus was holy. What Christ was by nature, I get through grace. This Paul is giving us here a phenomenal picture of the Christian life. It isn't improvement through hard work. It isn't some kind of moral staircase where you get better and better and better and better. It isn't growth through discipline and hard work and effort. It's growth through grace. Growth through grace, which inevitably leads to hard work. If you're lazy, you don't get the gospel. Period. Paul is giving us this phenomenal picture. Now listen. What do I mean? It's growth in grace that leads to hard work. Most of us don't know what holy means. So that we think... There's some way by avoiding sins and by doing some good things, we can actually become more holy. Okay? Listen, holy is completely other. God is holy. We're not. When you sit down to read your Bible and you go, I'm going to read my Bible because I need to be holy. I need to be holy. I'm going to read my Bible. That's like an orange sitting down going, I'm going to be an apple. 
fundamentally different, right? An orange, there's nothing an orange can do to make itself an apple. There's nothing, listen to me. There's nothing you can do to make yourself holy to God. There's nothing you can do to make yourself acceptable and good enough and godlike. There's nothing you can do. Well, then why should I even read my Bible? Prayer, Bible reading, worship, communion with the Father, the sacraments, meditation, all of these things are called, listen, called a means of grace. What does that mean? When I come to the Bible, I come there with open hands and I say, like Paul, I am the least of all the apostles. I am bankrupt. I have nothing good in myself. I am nothing but sin. I do nothing but sin. Jesus, you said I can do nothing without you. I do nothing but sin, and I need grace. And coming to the scripture, is that you humbly saying, I lack everything, you possess any, everything, and I need it. It's not coming. I'm going there to memorize. I'm going there to help. I'm going there to be holy. I'm going... Wrong. Jesus looked at Pharisees that did that and said, oh, you search the scriptures because you think you can find life there. Wrong. They point to me. There's only life in me. You can memorize this whole thing and be completely far from God. You can read your Bible every day. You can pray diligently every day and it has no effect on you whatsoever unless you come in grace. I need grace. That's what I need. I need to be, to be reminded I, who I am in Christ. I need to be reminded that my identity's changed. I need to re- be reminded that you picked me out, that you knocked me off my donkey, so to speak, that you overtook me, that you shined in my heart and I saw Jesus Christ, and now I'm fundamentally different, not defined by what I've done or what I do. It's a change in identity. The life of God deposited in the soul of man, out of sheer grace, unearned, unachieved. Friends, this is the gospel. If you, when Paul says, unless you've believed in vain, he's, he's just saying, unless you've believed another gospel. And, and there's many of us in this room who we have believed another gospel. We've we've believed the gospel of self-help. We believe the gospel that God helps those who help themselves. We believe the gospel that we can be good enough and smart enough if we just read our Bibles and pray a little more. We've believed the gospel that that we're no longer sinners, that we're no longer in need of grace. Paul says, his grace toward me was not in vain. The new identity given to me by grace, listen, here's the second, as I close, here's the second thing. Paul says, the, if your life has been infected, infiltrated by the resurrection, by the gospel, you have a new identity. And he says, and out of that new identity flows new rhythms. Out of that new identity 
flow new rhythms. He says, I worked harder than all of you. But it's not me, it's the grace of God. It's not me, it's the grace of God. The gospel is about far more than just forgiveness. Does the gospel include forgiveness? Yes, absolutely. But the purpose of the forgiveness is to make possible a life lived with God in community and on mission. The purpose of forgiveness is so that we can live with God in community and on mission. That's the purpose, one of the purposes of forgiveness. It's not just to get us to heaven. It's to kind of get heaven to earth in a sense. His kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Paul's new identity had produced new rhythms in his life. And you know it? Because look how he ends. I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. And then look at this, verse 11. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. You know what he's talking about right there? Who gets the credit? Who gets the credit? Paul came in. Paul preached the gospel. Paul started this church. Paul founded this church on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then Paul left. And then other people came in, and they preached, and they were better speakers than Paul, and they were more fancy, and they had gifts, and they all this kind of stuff. And when Paul's evaluating the work there, he's saying, ah, uh, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace so changed me that I worked my fingers to the bone in Corinth. I sacrificed and labored, and I laid it all on the line for the sake of the gospel. But if you want to give somebody else the credit for it, I don't care. See, that's how you know your identity's changed. If you're an employee, you know how frustrated it makes you when your boss takes credit for your idea. Right? Paul says, it doesn't bother me because my identity's somewhere else. My identity's not in my own work. My identity is now in Christ. So as I close this morning, this is forgettable. Let me just say that. I never forget the facts of the resurrection. I never forget the, the historical facts. What I forget is that my identity is in grace. That's what I forget. I struggle to believe this. Though it's happened in me, the weight of my sin, all the frustrations of my life, the busyness, the work, everything that's coming up, this is the hard part. This is why New Testament tells us in other places, brothers, as long as it's called today, remind each other, love each other, speak words of encouragement to one another. What's he saying? Remind each other of the gospel. Remind each other you're not what you do. You are in the grace of God. You have a new identity, and out of the new identity comes the rhythms of life. Can you say that? How do you know if you can say it? Well, Paul said this. I am the worst. Paul's not a rapist. Paul's not a child molester. Right? 
I'm, I'm trying to pull, pull stuff from our categories, right? The worst, the worst. I just say, Paul's better than us. We were like in a, a moral contest. We were like in a religious contest. Paul's better. But when Paul looks at himself through the gospel, he says, I'm not as good as you. I'm worst. I'm the worst of all. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. I said that no one can make themselves a Christian. God makes Christians. Can I tell you, this is how he does it. I know you don't like it. None of us like it. He knocks us off our horse, and he shows us our wickedness. He shows us there's a chasm between God and us, and you can't jump it. You, you, you can't go from an apple to an orange. You, you can't make, there's no way. That's going to happen. You've got to see that. And you've got to say, God, I have nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. I need grace. I'm in desperate, desperate, desperate need of grace. Father, for those in this room this morning who've never professed faith in Christ, they've never believed the gospel, they've never had that conversion where they go from death to life, where they're made new. I pray that they would believe, they would see that beauty of the resurrection, not just the truth of the resurrection, but the beauty of the resurrection, and they would be converted, and they would have that resurrection see planted in their soul, a very new life from God that enables a life lived with you and a life lived in community and a life lived on mission. And Father, for the, for the Christians in here who've we believe the gospel. We would call ourselves followers of Christ. But oftentimes, we minimize the gospel to like sin management. We minimize the gospel to Jesus took care of my sins, so now I can go to heaven. And it doesn't really affect the way we live our life. Father, I pray that we would be um, struck by the magnificence, by the intricacy, by the brilliance, by the diversity of the gospel that Paul preaches here, a gospel that doesn't just forgive us, but it changes us fundamentally. And out of that change, it changes the way we relate to the world. So I pray that we would understand our identities as forgiven sons and daughters, as missionaries, as servants, as people who are always learning more and more about you so that we can like the story of Israel, we can be your people who show the world what God is like. What's it look like to live in community? What's it look like to live with God? What's it look like to be surrounded by diverse people that are different from us, but we all believe the same thing? What's it look like to live in community and on mission? We would be that people all because of the grace of God. You've done a gracious work in our heart. Father, I, I pray that you would make this real to us, even if we've been believers for decades. You would do something new in our minds and in our hearts over the coming weeks. Again, this is uh, for your glory. This is for our good.
And as we come this morning to take the Lord's Supper, may we remember what we're not, that we're not holy, we're not you, but may we remember what Christ has done to make us holy. Father, let us receive the body, let's receive the blood of Christ as a means of grace that we come empty-handed, We come hungry and thirsty and need to be filled. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus.